The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive, a collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of The History of Gear, we talk with Colin Berg, brand historian for Eddie Bauer. We talk about how the 100-year-old brand has led the way, preserving its history, the power of archives to brand authenticity, and the opportunity for brands to work together to preserve industry stories. Welcome back, everyone. This is Chase, and joining me today is Colin Berg, uh, the brand historian at Eddie Bauer. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. It's it's great to talk to you. This has been a conversation that's uh, I've wanted to have for a long time because I've when when we talk about um, company archives, Eddie Bauer's is one that that comes up routinely, um, and so it was about time that we got you on to ha- be a part of our history of gear series that we've been doing here on the, on the podcast, but. Um, it, as you know, the earliest when I started getting into to archiving and and talking with companies about their collections, Eddie Bauer was one of those that always came up. It seemed like everyone knew that Eddie Bauer had a really great collection, um, and was had a really conscious effort um, around preserving its history. Um, and I kind of want to get into that today. It's like, where did this reputation come come from? And I'm assuming a lot of it goes back to you. Um, but but we'll we'll get into that. Um, so, so I wanted to take a step back first of all and just understand where how did you get into the outdoor industry? What was your first um, introduction to to working in this industry? Um, well, I, I mean, it, it starts with just personal interest. I've always loved the outdoors um, in varying things from when I was younger to some backpacking and. Um, when I was in college, I hitchhiked around the country a lot and dovetailed that with some backpacking trips in Big Sur and those kinds of things. And then uh, my wife and I moved to the Pacific Northwest in the late 1980s. And um, I was freelance writing at the time or was an aspiring freelance writer. And when we first moved up here, um, in order to supplement that, um, meager income. I uh, um, took a job with Eddie Bauer um, in their call center, which at the time was local here in the Seattle area, and took orders on the phone over the Christmas holidays um, that year. And so that was my first exposure to the brand. Um, and was really, I mean, I was familiar with their catalog as a consumer and so forth, but um, was really impressed with uh, the unconditional lifetime guarantee that had been 
part of the, the brand ethos from its beginnings and was, was still, this was in the 1980s. Um, and, but that was just a six month temporary gig. And then when it was over, I went off and did other things. So, um, was uh, freelance writing and then was uh, doing in-house creative services writing for different companies. Um, and then in the mid nineties, I had an opportunity to, um, to uh, I got hired at by Ed Bauer as a writer. Um, and so for about 10 years, was on the writing staff, became a copy manager. And it was the last five years, I was the copy director. And it was that, how, that's how I actually um, became involved with the archives, sort of tangentially initially. Um, just as a writer, as a storyteller, essentially, the, the old stories that, you know, not only of the brand, but of the historic expeditions the company had outfitted, and, you know, just the, and the, you know, the human drama and human interest of, of those, those stories and of those old garments that were in the archives. And there was a, there was an archivist on staff. She was actually an executive administrative assistant, and so and one of her duties was coordinating the archives. Um, and so I got her to come and do talks to the writing staff just to sort of expose them, to indoctrinate them to some of the brand ethos and so forth. Um, um, and then uh, she was laid off during one of the reduction courses that the company went through in, in, uh, in some of its ups and downs, economic ups and downs. And so I inherited the keys to the archives, which was a storeroom in the basement at the time. Um, and then... Uh, uh, that's how my, that was my initial entrance into it and then said ups and downs and then so that's a sort of a meandering answer to your first question well what, what do you happen to know what the origins of the collection was prior to your involvement it sounds like there was a there was a collection or at least there was a closet where yeah, stuff was, a, was put but what, what how did that start do you happen to know um, well, as far as we can tell, we have some email documentation from back in the mid-late 1980s where by that point, um, a company was, you know, just a family-owned business into the 60s. And then Eddie and his son sold their share of the business to their two partners in, in 1968. And then... Um, uh, those two men sold their uh, share to, uh, they sold to um, General Mills in the early 70s. And from that point on, it became, it became a much more corporate structure. Um, but through all the, not only through those um, family-owned business era, but even the first 20 years of the corporate um, history of the company, it was really a family of employees. So there were a lot of employees that had been here for 20, 30, 40 years and stuff like that. And so it was a, 
a really close-knit group. Well, by the mid to the late 1980s, people were starting to realize, hey, you know, we've now been in business for 60 plus years, so we've got a lot of old stuff, and we should probably start to try to organize it in some sort of way instead of just having piles of things in people's the corner of people's offices and stuff. So this memo went out saying, listen, we're going to start an archive. If you've got any old things that you don't need, send it to so-and-so. And, and these two people are going to start cataloging and then organizing. And so that was the birth of the archives. Um, and one of the two people that was in charge of it was this administrative assistant. Her name was Susan, her name was Susan Canole. And she did a fabulous job in in providing the initial organization of it. And, um, but it was just one of a whole array of, of assignments that she had, duties that she had. And it, um, so the, and the acquisition process was pretty haphazard. Um, um, and so for, from the late eighties into the early, 2000s, the archives really was just a storeroom with stuff in boxes and um, uh, with a couple of three-ring binder notebooks that had, you know, um, inventory of what was there and so forth. But um, only a very few people had any idea of what was included. Um, through many of the years of the catalogs, the covers were commissioned art where um, well-known um, outdoor artists would paint um, landscapes or, or wildlife and so forth like that. And part of the archive collection was and still remains some of the original paintings. Um, wow. Um, and so the, the, the little bit that people knew of the archives were some of those paintings would be on hallways in the offices and there were a couple of showcase windows that had an old down jacket or, you know, that type of thing. So there were two or three pieces that were pretty well known to people. Um, I mean, to the general associate community. Um, but the extent of the archives was relatively unknown. Um, and then when I, um, was on the writing staff, as I said, I had, uh, I got to know Susan and had her um, come and uh, give tour, give archive tours to the writers and, you know, tell some of the stories. And um, so she did slideshows, you know, this was before PowerPoint and stuff like that. So she was doing um, uh, 35 millimeter slides and stuff like that, you know, old photos and, you know, that kind of thing. And then after she left, uh, as I said, I inherited the archive. <coughs> it was in about 2003 or so, or 2002. And then in 2004, I left myself. I left, I left everybody. And so it kind of went into a deep freeze. Um, and there wasn't really anybody else who had spent a great deal of time in there. And then in 2007, a new CEO came by the name of Neil Fisk, and he felt really strongly that um, a key to really revitalizing the brand was to reintegrate its past and that rich heritage and that rich history 
with its vision going forward. And the key part of that he saw was this archive that he had heard about, um, but which was in deep storage. And at that point, the company was had uh, had just or was in the process of moving from uh, uh, to a completely different location. So a lot of the archives were scattered around the city in different warehouse storage and stuff. So it was really disjointed. So they called me up and asked me if I would come back on a temporary basis to help them unpack and um, put it to back together and help them, you know, help them identify the key stories. And so I was hired on a three-month temporary assignment to do that. And at the end of the three months, we were just scratching the surface, so they extended it to another three months and then another six months and then turned and it eventually became um, a staff position. So that was in 2007. I came back on a temporary assignment, but not 13 years later. Um, so um, I was the, you know, I inherited uh, a, a fairly well-established and originally reasonably well-organized archive that had gotten more disorganized because it had been stored away and moved around and, you know, so that the first two or three years I was here it was really kind of like assembling or getting ready to assemble a jigsaw puzzle where you start spreading out the pieces. Um, and um, first of all, determining what, what's there. And a lot of the pieces I was aware of, I'm, I was familiar with from, from having worked with Susan and the archives in the past. Um, some of the some of the stuff, and especially some of the more esoteric details, I had never seen before, and nor some of the interrelationships of how they connected. Or there was, um, I don't know um, if every city uh, has these things, but Seattle has some of these bridges to nowhere on the highways. You know where they like a, 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 a construction progress project starts and then somehow. I don't know, loses its funding or something, and there's just sort of something that just sort of stops and it's just hanging out there. Well, there was, I mean, there was a lot of that stuff where these sort of these storylines would start, you know, like like an expedition or a, or some sort of a development would start, and then it would just there would just be these gaps where it would suddenly suddenly stop, or there tangentially there'd be something else that was sort of related but not that well connected. And so a lot of the early work that I was doing was, again, assembling, all, you know, really getting a clear inventory of what the pieces were, and then starting to make the associative connections that as I started reading the old, we've got notebooks from the, some of the old expeditions where there's communication, um, memos, or letters, this is before the days of email, um, letters uh, between the company and the expeditions and so forth. And some reading some of that material, um, you you know, suddenly made connections where we had this old photograph that was labeled one place, maybe Antarctica, and it turns out it wasn't Antarctica all in all. It was Makalu in LA or something like that, or vice versa kind of thing. And you start making these connections and putting things together. So it was really kind of a, uh, detective work sort of thing is fascinating and just seeing how the stories emerged um, uh, so 
it was a dream come true, really, for, for somebody, you know, for me, my background as a writer, as a storyteller, I was basically given the keys to a century of great stories, you know, and, and the freedom to explore them and pursue them and to follow, go down every uh, rabbit hole and um, a labyrinth to, to see where it, where it all um, took us. And so it was, uh, it's been a, a fun ride. Do, do you feel like your background and your skill set as a storyteller e- equips you in a different way or, or had prepared you in a different way or, or um, allows you to look at the archive in a, in a different way than, than maybe someone else? I not, not saying any is right or wrong, but, um, but I, I imagine your storytelling background really influences how the collection is not only preserved or viewed, but how, um, it's it's accessed or used by the company. Definitely, um, and that that I mean, and it's it's important to note, as you said, that it's not that there is a right way or a wrong way. Um, and I know that if I were to give a tour of the archives to somebody who was you know classically trained as a archivist or as a museum curator, they'd probably blanch at some of the things we've done that I've done, you know, um, with the archives or how we've preserved them. Um, but um, for it, as it turns out, my background as a writer um, um, and my I have a love of history. My dad was an amateur history buff, and when we traveled from Southern California, where we lived, to Minnesota, where my grandparents and where my family was from, I think we stopped at every historical marker between Southern California and Minnesota. Um, um, in the course of my childhood, um, and so it, and so the the whole Western migration, the pioneers became this living, breathing thing for me as a child, um, and so that love of history and love of story certainly reached its fruition in this position, and I think certainly um, happily for me and. Um, and happily for the company, as it turns out, that the, that the CEO, who was this great champion of resurrecting the archives and animating it, shared that orientation. Of, he was really interested in, in, in articulating and clarifying the Eddie Bauer story and, and how the individual stories, Eddie's story, his wife Christine's story, their collective story, all the stories of the mountaineers and the, all the advent, outdoor adventures that the company has been associated with, um, um, how that, and the story of the hundred years of, of customers that have come to us from all sorts of walks of life. Um, that was really the company's interest in the stories. And so to have a storyteller be um, the one building out the archives really fit. Um, now, if it had been, if I wasn't a storyteller, if I had been like a classically trained archivist, it would in a somewhat different way. And I'm sure it would be just as good, probably better in some regards. Um, um, although some other things wouldn't have been, you know, I mean, it's every, every situation is unique and, and, um, 
when you mentioned Val at Patagonia, when she and uh, three other people from Pat Patagonia came up to visit us to see the archives, they spent a couple of days. Um, and I explained to them that our orientation was really, we use the archives as a vehicle to tell Eddie Bauer's story and also to use it as a reference library, especially for the product developers, but really for the whole company. Um, and for the, as we expand our relationship with vendors and licensees, for example, whenever we have uh, new relationships with companies, um, uh, they send reps out and give them tours and stuff because to really understand the ethos of a brand, it really helps to to be able to see a hundred years of that brand um, and not just the current marketing um, um, platform. And so right. So. I think that's an interesting point that that we should dwell on for a minute. The fact that Patagonia came to you right. to, to ask how do you build an archive or at least look at, at what had been done at the company. And I, I admire that, um, that you and the company was willing to share. And that's kind of what we're trying to do with this initiative is whether materials end up here at the university housed and protected, um, or it inspires the efforts that, that we're engaged in help inspire a company to go and establish an archive. That's great. Like we're all about helping, um, solidify the the place of these companies and this industry as a whole um mm. in in history and so i i i admire that and that that's a point that i don't want people to hear and and gloss over the fact that you were an instrumental part in helping um inspire that or or help them establish that have, have you had more of those conversations with other archivists or or companies uh, that aspire to to establishing their own collections uh, yeah rei came to um, came to us so just much more recently. They were in the process of moving their corporate headquarters, yeah. um, um, which now with COVID, their plans have changed again. But they were that as part of their their move to a new center, they were going to significantly expand their or and a really kind of formally establish an archive. And um, one of their staff had. Um, previously been at Bauer and in fact had been the instrumental visual um, designer who helped uh, uh, lay out the, the, uh, the Eddie Bauer's archive display room just before she left Eddie Bauer. And so she was um, instrumental in bringing a team from REI to Eddie Bauer as well. And I gave them a couple of tours and, and talk to them as well. Um, you know, and again, I, um, you know, I would tell, you know, to show them, tell them sort of our approach and why we did it the way we did it. Um, not with the idea that they should do it the Eddie Bauer way, but that they should find, you know, the, really, the, I mean, the truth, you know, the truth is that every company has to decide, first of all, what they what they need and want from the archive and then to build it out in support of that. But, you know, kind of um, uh, the archives, corporate archives, in my opinion, especially, you know, with archives of, of iconic brands like Eddie Bauer, like REI, like Patagonia and North Face are becoming as they, go, as, as they um, 
as the decades pass and uh, Pendleton, like Pendleton people have been through our archives and Filson too. Um, um, the pre I mean, obviously it's important individually for us to preserve the history, Eddie, for Eddie Bauer to preserve Eddie Bauer's history, for Patagonia to preserve Patagonia's history. But it's very much like um, our grandparents, um, and our parents and grandparents as they age and, and, and leave us, if we don't sit down with them and really get the stories either recorded or written down or deeply remembered, um, it's very easy for that to slip away, you know, whether it's the oral histories or the written histories and so forth. And um, uh, my parents lived into their 90s and even now, um, I mean, I'm, I'm on the brink of 70 myself now and, and uh, um, even now after my folks have gone, there are times when I think of something I want to ask them. I can't quite remember the detail of something from, from our, our personal family history and they're not here anymore and stuff. So, um, and so I think part of the, the importance, the really the vital importance of, of brand histories and archives and, the, and why it is incumbent on those of us in this field to be collaborative and, and mutually supportive uh, is because it's not only important for us to preserve our own personal history or our own, um, our own brand's history, but to collectively, you know, um, support the far memory, the cultural far memory of, 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 um, of, of the culture, and so that um, is so that it's as accurate as we can make it and as rich um, as that history deserves. And so the old, the old, I mean, it's one thing to have things written down and to be able to read them, and that's certainly invaluable, but it's a completely different level of experiencing the, those stories when you can walk through, through, walk somebody through space and show them a jacket that's 80 years old and that 80 years ago, it was on the summit of K2 or something mm -hmm. like that. And, was worn by a guy who saved six people from falling 8,000 feet off a mountain kind of thing. And those are, I mean, that, I mean, you sit there and you think, that jacket, that was sort of, I mean, it's, it's really, um, it's really amazing. And, and another thing that, um, sort of a, an example of, of how the Bauer archive has been used, when that, when Neil Fix, the CEO who came in 2007 um, and really, and it really instigated the the major focus of the archives in the power culture. Um, he insisted that every person who came to the corporate offices as part of the interviewing process, that they had to have an archive tour as part of their interview. And so during that two or three year period where that was the law of the land, I was doing up to 10 archive tours a week. Wow. Um, and uh, so I got to know the spiel really well. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it, you know, what was really interesting about it was that people came away completely blown away. You know, they, they'd come, you know, looking for a you know, obviously looking for a job and interest being, were interested in the company. 
but had no idea of the depth and range of of what was be, the ethos behind it. And so they, whether or not they ended up getting hired or not, they came away with, I mean, they were always, or 95% of the time, just wide-eyed and really enthusiastic about having having been there and so forth. And so that's, I mean, that's an ambassadorship that is like very few other things. Um, and so brands that have any kind of history at all or any kind of story at all to tell, um, really, I mean, it's a way of, of really gauging how, how good a match somebody is. Because if, if they don't resonate to something like who you really are, then it's not likely going to work out that well. Right. Well, it, you know, you've, you've mentioned this throughout our conversation so far, but it seems like from the top, um, it seems like a lot of these collections get started from the top, right? There's got to be buy-in from the top to to allocate the resources, um, to hire someone who can spend the time and do it right. There's got to be space allocated. There's maybe got to be a budget so you can go out and buy materials and, and maybe bring some of these items back home. Um, it, um, it it's interesting to me. It seems like more and more that's the case. There's there's an interest in bringing these materials back home for a lot of brands, and and each company seems to have maybe kind of a different um, different reasons for that. Um, for some companies, it's purely that reference library of of um, of physical products that that the designers can go and back and reference, knowing that those classic styles are are you know big drivers for the company from that perspective. Um, but I think ultimately, it seems like a lot of companies recognize that there's a currency that comes with having your history and understanding your history, and you can rely on that. Um, uh, and it adds a depth to the brand, right? If you're telling that story authentically um, and people see that and you kind of illustrated that with with potential employees, candidates coming through and seeing the richness of the history of Eddie Bauer and its contributions, not only to the industry, but I, I mean, there's, there's so many um, national, international connections that the mm-hmm. company has. Um, I think that's, that's really interesting to me as more and more companies are recognizing um, that history has power in a lot of different ways and not always just from that, you know, uh, a revenue perspective, right? There's, there's, there's something to having that richness of a brand that, um, and there's not that many hundred year old brands out there. Right. And a lot of these outdoor companies are, are hitting these milestones, you know, 50 years, 60 years, there's only a couple hundred year old outdoor brands, but, um, like you said earlier, it's really easy, even for these, some of these brands that have been around for a long time, it's easy for people to forget how old they are and how significant the impacts have been, um, you know, in, within the industry, you know, culturally. And so it, it, there, there really is significant value in, in people like you, as well as other archivists and other storytellers out there um, to continue to tell the story of these brands and their impacts. And I've noticed that in the collections that we're building, it is so easy for um, 
not only the big brands, but the smaller brands to just disappear from memory. Um, Cause some of these smaller brands that maybe got acquired or died out, they, who speaks for them. Right. And that's kind of where I've been spending a lot of my time. And I've mentioned this example on, on quite a few podcasts. So listeners will probably be tired of hearing it, but I figured it might be interesting for you in the early summit magazine catalogs that, that we have, I've flipped through and looked at the ads and you see some of the, the classic brands, the Jerry's, the Holy Bars. Um, and right next to them in the 50s, 60s, there's a company called Bud Davis Packs. And I have searched online. I have tried to look everywhere possible. I've asked people who are even connected to the Pacific Northwest and, and been involved in the industry up there. And no one seems to have any memory of this company. Um, and so that's that. That to me, that's that's really interesting. A company that is right there next to Jerry and Holy Bar. That I think that both are kind of having a revival right now, or have have long histories that are pretty well documented. Not not completely. Another company right next to them has quickly disappeared from from memory. Right. And so that's the value of people like you who tell stories and document things and put them online so that people can access them and, and find them and. Um, and those memories can live on. So I don't know if you have thoughts there, but that's that's where this work has really resonated with me. Um, well, actually, I do have an anecdote about Bud Davis Packs, actually. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's you're the first that I've heard. So, um, and I can't remember off the top of my head which of the expeditions it was, um, um, but. A lot of times, different on, on some of these early expeditions, I mean, there would be a, um, <clears throat> a gear coordinator or somebody who was responsible for getting either all of the equipment or some parts of it. <clears throat> and on this particular um, expedition, um, uh, the guy who was um, the guy who was responsible for, or who at least had uh, lobbied for the packs had had uh, they they chosen Bud Davis packs mm. uh, 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 for and the the group had huge problems with the packs all the way up the mountain and stuff and they mm. <laughs> their favorite conversation was swearing at the packs and swearing at the guy who had made them bring the bring these packs all the way up and down the mountain. Um, and I'll, <clears throat> I'll see if I can find the reference and get more specifics on it. So I, I re, as I recall, it was a, it was a Seattle company. Mm -hmm. Yep. <clears throat> um, but if, if that was the case, um, it, I mean, if, if that expedition's experience with those packs was, was indicative of how it was performing in other situations, it's probably not surprising that it was a relatively short-lived right right yeah no that those are and i think that's it's interesting that it's been so difficult to track down any reference of of those companies but to me um i mean there's there's valuable stories to be learned whether you're a hundred year old company that's still in existence or or a blip on the radar of the history of the industry right and so it's it's been interesting to try to track that down but i think a good lesson learned right it's like those materials, this this memory and collective memory can easily be lost if if we don't put put material in a form where it can be accessed and 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 utilized. 
Yeah, and <clears throat> another aspect of that, especially relative to the outdoor industry, and, and certainly with Cincinnati Power with mountaineering, when I mean, you're building gear and, and apparel, but, you know, gear, when I say gear, I mean, I don't mean just packs and bags and stuff like that, but parkas and all, and all the you know, sleeping bags and everything tents. <clears throat> you're building equipment that people are going to use in the most extreme conditions where the, the, the difference of success and failure can be a matter of life and death. Mm. Um, then <clears throat> whether or not, it's built by Eddie Bauer, who's been fortunate enough to be in business for 100 years, or by Davis, who I'm not sure how long they were in business, or, or any other, or any of the other companies. It's it's a, in many ways, <clears throat> in this industry, it's a collective evolutionary process. It's not just about, you know, isolated individual brands, even those that have maintained a high level performance consistently. Nobody is developing in isolation. Um, and I know that you know, the our guide and athlete team, <clears throat> many of whom are, are world renowned in terms of in their fields, um, they talk when they go to climb Everest, they talk about they stand you know standing on the shoulders of giants on the on the generations before who climb those mountains, Himalayan mountains, when there weren't fixed ropes and there weren't established routes and there weren't, you know, a hundred Sherpas carrying their loads and all that kind of stuff. Um, <clears throat> and professional guides and so forth. And the same thing is true in terms of product development, that whether or not, maybe those Bob Davis packs didn't work, maybe they were crap on the, at that particular time on that particular expedition. But it's, I mean, the, the evolution and refinement and continual um, improvement of the gear is a collective effort. Mm -hmm. um, and um, regardless of what brand it is and the things we learn, the things that seem to make sense on the design table have to really be proven at 20,000 feet on the slopes of some, um, some mountain. And what makes sense in Seattle, doesn't necessarily make sense on Everest, um, or uh, what we think is going to um, um, survive, even if it survives on Rainier as a testing ground, it maybe won't survive in that way. Um, and so, to get um, overly, uh, either overly arrogant or overly humiliated or overly judgmental about a success or failure you know, really misses the point. It's kind of like <clears throat> you talk to mountaineers who, who, you know, who, who have climbed these 8,000 years and so forth. I mean, they don't, um, while it's always the goal to reach a summit, the success or failure of the expedition isn't determined really um, by whether or not they reach the summit. It's whether or not they... Um, Pushed the limits and, re and reached reached as far as they could, and then when they were when they're faced 500 feet below the summit, when they're faced with a decision of do they have enough resources, do they have enough energy, do they have enough time to get back down safely, or is it time to turn around and go back? 
and to have the, the clear thinking at, at high elevation to realize that in order to, to save yourself, you need to go back down. Um, especially in like a retail outdoor industry where, I mean, you, you're, you're, um, it's really easy to get caught in this silo of its, its each individual brand and so forth. And so another great value of, of the historical record of archives is that archivists, his brand historians, have a little more latitude in being a little more holistic and inclusive in thinking, hopefully. Um, and so the preservation of the history isn't just about the individual brand. Um, um, but the success of mountaineering gear in general, the continue, amazing things that, that they build, how incredibly lightweight and durable waterproof and all these different things that, that they can do now is in part because those Bud Davis packs fell apart on this expedition in the 1950s. Uh, and so uh, whether or not the company is still in business or not, it's not, it's not just, it's not fair to just write somebody off as, as an insignificant blip. Uh, from another perspective, we're all insignificant blips. So. Yeah, right. Well, I think that's where the, I mean, this idea of stitching together the 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 overall history of the industry is, it's a tall order, and I'm I'm grateful that people like Dr. Rachel Gross are are tackling that. Right. Yeah. And I know you've worked with, with Dr. Gross before, and that's kind of the next stage of this, right? I think um, to have um, researchers, historians, um, to, to take a step back. I, a lot of us are so in what we're doing that we have a hard time looking at, at the larger picture and, and recognizing the larger impacts um, of the industry or, or certain companies on the industry and, and, and you know, the rest of society. And so that's where the work of Dr. Gross, I think is, is really impactful and really interesting. She's really helped open my eyes to um, how old this industry really is. I think for a lot of people, maybe people who are newer to the outdoor industry, they think, well, the, the outdoor industry was, this, you know, really started in the sixties and seventies, right? Yeah. Maybe that's where it really picked up, but um, you know, the yellow beans, the Eddie Bowers, um, the Abercrombie and Fitches of the world, right. Um, at the turn of the century. Um, and even before that, I know Dr. Gross's work focuses on civil war onward, kind of this modern era of the outdoor industry. Um, I, I don't know. There's something significant to recognizing your place in a larger, a larger context. Um, okay. it, it makes you look at the work that you're doing slightly differently. Um, I don't know. I, I, any, any thoughts on, on that? I just think her work is so impactful and it changes the way that I look at, at my place within the outdoor industry, um, considering how, how old it really is, um, how old and how young at the same time. Yeah, um, yeah it, it makes me think of a, it's actually, a, um, I've been a student of Tai Chi for 45 years and there's a, there's a, principle in Tai Chi called opening to one's place in the circle. And it has to do with um, breaking down adversarial competitive relationships by ch conceptually changing the shape of the connections from straight line back and forth, which tend to be um, push-pull kind of thing, to a, a thinking of all relationships as a circle. 
Um, and so opening to our place in the circle changes. So like the example I mean, the, of, of Rachel's uh, relationship in a wide view of things and seeing our place in a wider perspective. It's like if all of if all the individual brands, while staying, you know, by, while holding true to the, their own ethos and their own perspectives and tending to their own needs, could consistently or more consistently open to each of our places in as the circle of connection of whether or not it's the circle of the outdoor industry or or whatever it might be, you, know, you, can, you can make the circle as large or as small as necessary. It changes the, the dynamic of how we interrelate, opens avenues of connection uh, so that when Patagonia approaches us, now Patagonia approached us in terms of the archives um, because one of our executives used to be an executive of Patagonia, so they had an inside connection. Um, um, but there isn't any reason why competitors can't share certain kinds of, of information. There are, and just understanding where the where the avenue, where the places are that we can share, where where we can collaborate, and where we necessarily need to be uh, to hold the the insiders the the secrets secret and, and the things that aren't secret don't have to, I mean, we get overly territorial about things that, it, you know, there's no reason to be when we all do this. Well, maybe, maybe kind of a last question for you to, to wrap some of this up, but um, I guess what, what keeps you excited about this work? I mean, you were it was a three, three month temporary assignment that's turned into 13 years. Um, <laughs> What what keeps you excited about this? There must still be plenty of stories to tell. Well, it's the stories, frankly. I mean, I, uh, uh, I don't know of any form of com- of communication and connection that's more powerful than stories, whether or not we're telling stories to our children um, or uh, to each other. Um, uh, it's through story that we can touch each other. I mean, stories reach us at a, at a more intimate level than almost any other form of communication. Um, and I am continually amazed um, by the stories that, by the windows and doorways into stories and human connection that I see, you know, in the archives. So um, now I'm um, um, I'm going to be retiring within the, the by the end of the year. So um, that part of the my direct involvement will end. But um, um, I'll be telling stories the rest of my life. I'm sure. <laughs> well, with with that said, what's the future of the archive? You are not the archive. There will be an archive um, after you, but I guess what's what's the future of the collection? Um, well, that's going to be the subject of many conversations over the next year, um, and uh, you know we've done we, we've begun preliminary conversations um, about that, uh, uh, but 
that will be for the company and other people to decide. Well, great. I, I appreciate you being generous with your time and, and the theme of, of sharing, uh, whether it's sharing um, lessons learned of how to build an archive with other companies or with us. Um, the work that you do is so impactful. And, and again, I, I have to mention that uh, your rep, rep, uh, the reputation of the archive precedes it. Um, I've been hearing about it for a long time. And so it's, it's been fun for me to, to dive in and, and learn more. So I appreciate you being willing to take the time. Well, if you're ever in Seattle um, post-COVID, feel free to stop by and give you a tour. I definitely, I will take you up on that. Hopefully, hopefully we can get through this sooner rather than later. I would love to come up and, and see it. Right. So, well, thank you, Colin. I, I, again, I appreciate it. Um, thank you for taking time. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, watch episodes on the Outdoor Product Design and Development YouTube channel, or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. Follow along on Instagram at USU Outdoor Product and let us know how you're enjoying the show.